Why does Christmas matter? Matthew and Luke in their Gospels are more concerned with the what of Christmas, the events surrounding Christmas, um, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus, right after the birth of Jesus, who was there, who was upset about it. John, on the other hand, is more concerned with the why. Not the what, but the why. Not the details of the birth, but the reasons for it. The importance of it. Let's look together. John chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word and not mine, so let's pray and ask for his help as we look at it tonight. Father, we do ask once again that you would draw near. That you would be present. And not only that you would be present, but that you would be at work. As we look at your word tonight. Would you come and do what only you can do. Make us alive. Make us holy. By your spirit. And in the name of Jesus. Amen. Flannery O'Connor has a great story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And there are two, two characters, two really important characters in this story. One is called the misfit, and the other is a grandmother. Now, the misfit is, is a criminal. He is a man on the run from the law. He's very dangerous. Um, he is not the sort of guy that you would want to mess with. But you can tell as the story goes on that he's actually thought a good bit about Jesus. The grandmother, on the other hand, is, is a very respectable lady. She always went to Sunday school. She always went to church. She always tried hard to do the right thing and associate with the right kinds of people. And and you can tell, too, that she has thought a good bit about Jesus. And and through a series of pretty unfortunate events, the misfit and the grandmother's paths cross. They intersect. 
The misfit is hiding out in the woods, and the grandmother is in a car accident near where he's hiding out, and he kind of takes her captive, and she feels very threatened. She knows who he is, and she feels very threatened by by him, and is worried that he is going to be violent against her, that he's going to get violent. And so he, she tries to convince him, she begins to plead with him to go easy on her. She, she begins to plead with him to go easy, and she begins to plead, and she says, look, if you will just pray to Jesus, if you will just pray to Jesus, he will fix all of your problems. And as she pleads with him, he interrupts her, and he says this. I actually think it's written in your bulletin. This is, this is what he says. He does not have good grammar. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. The misfit continued. And he shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but to enjoy the few minutes that you've got left the best way you can. By killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. Ain't no pleasure but meanness. Now, what the misfit is doing here is he's, he's forcing us into a choice. That either Jesus is who he says he is and he is worthy of complete and utter devotion. Or he's not. And you should just get what you can out of life. Another way to ask it is this. Either Christmas is intensely important. It's crucial. It's full of significance. Or it's just empty sentimentality and Lexus commercials and you know, too much food. And It either means everything or it means nothing. It's either of massive importance or total insignificance. And, and the misfit confronts us with this choice. Is Jesus worth everything or is he worth nothing? Now, that may seem like a weird question to ask in a church on a Sunday evening. And I really do mean it as a real question. Not just a hypothetical you know, preaching device. I mean it as a real question. Is Jesus worth everything or is he worth nothing? And I mean it because I know that some of you are asking that question. Some of you are asking that question from inside Christianity. That you've been following Jesus for a long time and you are seeing others outside of the Christian faith who seem to be leading happier, more fulfilled, more free lives. And you're wondering, is it worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Or or you've been doing the Christian routine for a long time. You've been going through the motions. You've been coming to church. You've been fellowshipping with other believers. You've been giving your money to the church. And it doesn't seem to be helping. You're still stuck where you were when you decided to follow Jesus. I mean it as a real question. I mean it as a real question. Some of you might be asking it from outside of Christianity. You're looking at your own life and you're, you're wondering... Is this it? Is this all there is? Does the church, does Jesus actually have something to offer? Is he worth everything or is he, is he worth nothing? I mean that as a real question. You won't be surprised to know that, that John's answer is that Jesus is worth everything. Jesus is worth everything. Th- three reasons why Jesus is worth everything here from this text. He's worth everything because he's big enough, because he's near enough, And because he's good enough. He's big enough, near enough, 
and good enough. So first, he's worth everything because he's big enough. Just look at the magnitude and the grandeur and the glory of Jesus according to John. Just here in these first couple of verses. In verse 1, he calls Jesus the Word. And we don't actually know who he's talking about at this point. But he says, in the beginning there was this Word, and this Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's saying, look, there was this thing in the beginning. And this thing was with God the Father. But he was distinct from God the Father. He wasn't the same. He was distinct, but he was actually equal to Him. He was the same. He he was just as glorious and powerful as God the Father. He actually was God Himself. And he continues in verse 2. This thing is not just a thing, it's a He. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, this word is not just an impersonal force, right? You're going to go see the Star Wars movie this week. The Word was not the the, the force. It was not impersonal. It was personal. He could be known. He continues in verse 3. This Word, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. In other words, this Word was the Creator. That all that we know, all that we see, nothing exists that He did not cause or create. And then in verse 4, he pushes it even further. This word, he says, was life. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. In other words, this word didn't just possess life. He, he didn't just have life, he was life. Life emanated from him. He was the author and the giver of life, the originator of life. So just here in these four short verses, here's what John is saying about Jesus. He's eternal. He's God. He's personal. He's the creator. He is life itself. He's the author of life. He's painting a huge picture of Jesus. Why? Before I went to seminary, I worked in the construction industry. And I worked on this large renovation and addition of a hospital in rural South Carolina. And before we could do anything on this project, we had to test the soil. To see if the soil was, was strong enough, if the ground was strong enough to withstand the weight of the building that we were about to put on top of it. It was like a six-story hospital building. It was massive. And so what we had to do is we, we took soil samples and we, we would press down into the ground and we'd shoot things down into the ground and we'd test the samples to see, is the ground hard enough? Can it withstand the weight of the building that we're about to put on top of it? Can it bear the weight of our building Now, our lives are constantly in soil testing mode. We're constantly looking for a foundation, something upon which to build our lives. The late David Foster Wallace, he puts it this way. He says, here's something that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. In other words, everybody builds their life on something. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million little deaths 
before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Wallace is saying, look, if you build your life on the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. If it's not a solid foundation, it just can't bear the weight of your life. Your life will crumble. And so John here in this passage is telling us of the glory of Jesus, of the bigness of Jesus, because he knows that Jesus is the only thing big enough to bear the weight of your existence. So here's the question. Is what you have built your life upon eating you alive or giving you life? Is it eating you alive or or giving you life? Here's how I think you can know the answer to that question. Pay attention to your anger, to your anxiety, and to your fear. Pay attention to your anger and to your anxiety and to your fear. They will tell you what you've built your life upon. Just a recent example from my own life. I like to worry. I'm pretty good at it. Um, And a couple of weeks ago, I was laying in bed worrying about money. Because it's that time of year. It's the end of the year. We've got Christmas. We've got travel. We've got all sorts of things we've got to spend money on. And that money's got to come from somewhere. So I'm laying in bed worrying about money. And I have the thought... If Mark Zuckerberg was my brother, or if Bill Gates was my dad, I would be able to sleep right now. And then I fell asleep. (laughs) I just had this thought of like, if I was related to somebody who was just filthy rich, everything would be fine. That's not really true. No amount of money in the bank is, is going to keep anxiety at bay. It cannot bear the weight of my life. And what John is saying, I I need to hear what John is saying here because he's saying, look, even if you're filthy rich, it can't bear the weight of your existence. It will crumble and you will crumble. Only Jesus is big enough to do that. Now, here's the amazing thing. John is telling us about this big, eternal, infinite, life-authoring Jesus. But then in the very next breath, he tells us he's not just big. He's near. The transcendent has become imminent in Jesus. He returns again and again to this idea that Jesus is the Word of God. That Jesus is, is, is God's self-revelation. I, I was talking with some students about this passage this semester at Sanford, about what it means that Jesus is the Word. Because it's kind of a hard concept to understand. And so we talked about how your words are your truest revelation of yourself. That I can't really know you unless you tell me what you're like, what it's like to be you. And I said, okay, so if you've ever been to Sanford's campus, Sanford has this beautiful quad right in the middle of campus. And all the time, especially on a pretty day like today, students are out there throwing the Frisbee and hanging out and studying or pretending to be studying and sitting in their Eno hammocks and stuff like that. And I said, okay, so I I could observe you on the quad for weeks I could watch you out there throwing the Frisbee with your friends, and I could think, he really likes Frisbee. 
But I wouldn't actually know the answer to that question unless you told me. Unless I asked you, do you like to play Frisbee? And you told me, yes, I like to play Frisbee. Because I could ask you, do you like to play Frisbee? I've seen you out there throwing the Frisbee a lot. And you could say, oh man, I love Frisbee. I'm on the club team. We're going to the playoffs this year. It's going to be great. Or you could say, actually, I hate Frisbee. You see that pretty girl over there? She loves Frisbee. And I really want her to go out on a date with me, so I go play Frisbee every single day. See, I wouldn't know that about you unless you told me. I wouldn't know that unless you gave me your word. It's it's the clearest revelation of yourself. So when, when John says that Jesus is God's word, he's saying, look, this is how you know what God is like. You look at the word. You look at Jesus. This is how you know what God is like. So what is this word doing? Verse 9. He changes the metaphor. and He calls Jesus the true light. And he says that this light was coming into the world. He was in the world, verse 10. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Again in verse 14, he goes back to the image of word. And he says, this word became flesh. He took on flesh. He became Vulnerable. So here's what John is saying. John is saying, look, God's self-revelation, what God is like, is He is not distant, He is near. He is not self-protective. He does not insulate Himself from harm. He becomes vulnerable. That in Jesus, the Creator has drawn near to His creatures. Now this is completely unique among world religions. All the other religions in the world say, look, God is out there. God is up there. God is far away. He is unattainable. He is inaccessible. And you must work. You've got to follow the rules. You've got to jump through the hoops. You've got to keep God's will. You've got to make your way to God. And Christianity says, no. You can't do it. God came down. God drew near to be with you, to rescue, and to redeem. See, Jesus is near. This is at the very heart of Christmas, that God came near to be with His people. Emmanuel, God with us. This is not only unique, it is comforting. Think about this. Jesus Jesus took on flesh. Jesus became a baby. We're about to have our third child in February. Babies poop and pee and spit up and cry, and they are needy, and they are vulnerable. Jesus became a baby. He needed somebody to potty train him. He needed somebody to bandage up his knees when he fell in the playground with his buddies. He became vulnerable. Here's why this is comforting. Because whatever it is that you experience in this world, Jesus felt it. Whatever it is that you experience, Jesus is no stranger to it. Do you feel lonely? Jesus knows what it's like to feel lonely. Do you feel grieved? Jesus knows what it feels like to be deeply grieved. In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he still weeps. He weeps. Because he knows what it's like to see someone you love die, and the tragedy of that, and the pain of that. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned and abused and rejected and tempted. He knows it all because He came near. He's near enough, not just for it to be comforting, but He's also near enough to make sense of it. 
You know, depending on how you look at the world, you're always trying to make sense of the pain and the suffering that you experience in this world. You're trying to make sense of it. Why is the world the way that it is? The mystical way of answering this question is that pain is just an illusion. Happiness, joy, pain, it's all going to kind of blend together in the end. It's just an illusion. The moralistic way of explaining this is that pain is actually what you deserve. That you, you get back what you put out into the world. If you are a bad person, bad things will happen to you. If you are a good person, good things will happen to you. The moralistic way of saying it is that pain is what you deserve. The secular way of saying it is that pain is totally meaningless. Pain is just a way of life. It's survival of the fittest. Your suffering, your happiness, your joy, your pain, everything in between is totally meaningless. It's just a neurological reaction. It doesn't mean anything. But Christianity, the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world says pain and suffering are not the way it is supposed to be. And they are also not meaningless. That God has entered into the narrative of history and He is making it right. He has entered into pain, into suffering in order to put an end to it. Christmas is Jesus getting behind enemy lines. This is how World War II was won. This is the purpose of D-Day. The Allies knew they had to get behind enemy lines. They had to. They had to penetrate enemy territory to disrupt the strategy and ultimately defeat the Nazis. It was messy, it was bloody, it was costly. But it was effective. Christmas is D-Day. Christmas is God entering into enemy territory. It's the beginning of the bloody, messy, costly process of Him defeating sin and death. Here's what's beautiful about it, though. The cost is not ours to bear. The blood is not ours to shed. The victory is not ours to win. It is Jesus's. Because not only is He big enough and near enough, He's good enough. He's good enough. In other words, He doesn't just suffer with us as one who is near and one who is vulnerable. He suffers for us. Look again at verse 14. John writes, and this word, this Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now the word in the Greek is a complicated word that we don't really use. What he means is that he tabernacled with us. You guys say that all the time. Let's go tabernacle with each other. No. What what does that mean? In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place of God's presence. It was the place where God dwelt among his people. It was the place to go and meet with God. But the other thing that happened at the tabernacle is it was also the place for the problem of sin to be dealt with. It was the place for atonement to be made. No, those things went together, right? Because you couldn't approach God, you couldn't come into God's presence, a holy and perfect God, without the problem of sin being dealt with. This is why if you wanted to go have, you know, tea with the president or with the queen... You would have to go through a cleansing process, right? They would do a background check. They would have to thoroughly vet you. You'd have to go through metal detectors. They'd pat you down. You can't just enter into the presence of a really important, powerful person whenever you want. You have to go through a cleansing process. And that's what happened at the tabernacle. You went through the cleansing process by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and birds so that the problem of sin would be dealt with and you could enter into the presence of God. 
So here's what John is saying. He's saying, look, Jesus is now the tabernacle. Jesus is the place where you both meet with God and where atonement is made. Jesus is the very presence of God in the world. And it's His blood that is spilled that is the once and for all sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is the tabernacle. In Jesus, the living God bleeds and dies to rescue His enemies so that they might be invited into His presence for good as sons and as daughters. I tried to think of a way to, to illustrate the, the absurdity of this. This is the best I can do. It's not great. It's the best I can do. Jesus dying for you and I would be like me jumping in front of a bus to save an ant that killed my whole family. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense, right? Like, I would never die to save a measly little ant, especially a measly little ant that killed my whole family. But that's the absurdity of the goodness of Jesus. That the transcendent became imminent to sacrifice himself for his enemies. That this big Jesus came near, near enough to die. He's good. He's good. He's good enough to live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die in our place. We started with a question. Why does Christmas matter? This is why Christmas matters. Christmas matters because Christmas is when God came near. He did not insulate himself from pain and from suffering and from death. He was actually swallowed up by them on the cross in order to defeat them on behalf of his people. This is why Christmas matters. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not stay far off. That you came near. Near enough to die. We thank you that you did not stay dead. But that you rose again, that you ascended into heaven, and that now we wait for you to return, for you to make all things new. I pray that over the the next few weeks of the season of Advent, that we wouldn't just remember when you first came, but that you would give us a deep longing for you to come again. That we would rest our hope there, in you and in you alone. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.